Good morning. I'm still in a weakened state, so you're just going to have to... I was saying, I'm glad that we didn't clap. There are some times when we just sit in the, in the grandeur and the wonder and the beauty of the, the moment that we've just been shared. So once in a while, it's an honor to say, we're not going to clap. We're just going to sit in the wonder of that anthem. It was gorgeous. Good morning, everybody. You've heard the expression uh, snowflakes to describe particularly delicate souls, right? There are no snowflakes here this morning, right? You have braved the blizzard conditions outside. You have braved the flu bug and the cold bug. Some of you have even knuckled, touched knuckles with your, you know, still typhoid-type pastor. Uh, so I'm really proud of you for being here today. Spread the word. It, it was good to, to take a risk and not be a snowflake to come to church. Choir, I was just bragging on you. That was a gorgeous uh, anthem. Thank you for, for that. Cindy and I just returned from uh, the desert for a few days. We had a chance to go down and, and dry out a little bit. It was nice to be down near Palm Springs, and after weeks of half hacking, uh, they say that I have something that's called a 100-day cough. I don't know if you've heard that, but that doesn't sound fun. Uh, so after days of hacking uh, and wheezing, it was, it was a wonderful gift to be able to take a deep breath of, uh, of hot air and... Um, sp- Speaking of breath, uh, the word for breath in Greek, how's that for a transition, is, um, is pneuma, pneuma. Can, what's the word that we get from pneuma? Pneumonia, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what I wondered if I had. My wife's still not convinced that I don't. Uh, pneuma means something else, though, in the Greek. Uh, it means spirit. Did you know that? Pneuma means spirit. And uh, so we are right now in a season of our journey through Romans where we're, we're breathing deeply of the Spirit of God. We're in the Holy Spirit chapter, chapter 8 of Romans. 21 times the word Spirit appears more than any other chapter in the, or any other chapter in the entire Bible. And after the hard slogging that we've done to get to this point, it is a wonderful thing to be able to pause as we're doing for these six weeks and just breathe deeply of the Spirit, to learn what it means to, to, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to live life in the Spirit. Last week, I had the chance to listen to Pastor Larry's very powerful and very personal um, message on life in the Spirit. Uh, One of the things that it brings to us is the recognition that we have been adopted as the children of the Heavenly Father. And and hearing Larry speak about that as I did, I found it quite moving what he talked about. We have been adopted into God's family. Uh, And and it's such a wonderful gift. We We can cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy to uh, our, heavenly, our heavenly Lord. But what we learned in the last part of the text from last week is not only are we God's children, verse 17 reveals something very amazing. Listen to this. If we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Jesus. Another translation puts it, joint heirs with Jesus. And imagine that. What Paul is saying is we're not second-class stepkids. You know, we're not barely let into the family, but kind of tolerated and given the crummy bedrooms down at the far end of the house where we have to be in, you know, bunk beds. we, we We are joint heirs with Jesus. Everything that Jesus has coming to him, everything, every eternal legacy that is his due, we share in that. How astounding is that? How gracious is that? Not only has Jesus saved us, he has said, Hey, Dad, I want you to write them into the will. 
I want you to give them an equal share of everything that I have coming to me. That's how much I love them. And that's how much God loves you. You, aren't you glad to know you're in God's will? You're written into his will, his living will. Join heirs with Jesus. That is really an amazing uh, statement. But if you paid attention, though, again, in that last verse from last week, there is one little stipulation. We might call it the fine print. I wonder if you saw this. And in case you didn't, I'm going to repeat it to you. Here it is. We are fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And you say, wait a second, I didn't know that that was part of the deal. I like the salvation thing, I like the going to heaven thing, I like the blessing thing, but what's this suffering thing? Provided that we suffer with him? This text was my intention to preach this for weeks and weeks. It is um, interesting, providential perhaps, timely, that I'm preaching it on the week when we had yet another terrible massacre. And the suffering that we are, are sure is taking place not only in Parkland, Florida, but across the country as we grieve this awful thing. And Paul has actually a lot to say about the topic of suffering. And we are courageously going to listen to what he has to say about it. And I believe we're going to discover something to be hopeful about you know, in, in a way that the rest of the world cannot because we discover that, it, that life in the Spirit does not mean that we won't suffer. It means that we will redeem suffering through Christ. Listen to this portion of Romans chapter 8. He writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. These adopted sons that he's just been talking about. The creation waits with longing. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him. That is because of God who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage and corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we, have the, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Take note of that last line. We wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Holy Spirit, come now and take your word and bring it to life in in our souls. We need what you have to say to us, especially on this topic. So we ask you to do it now in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, uh, Cindy and I really enjoyed our drying out time in the desert. It's an area called the Coachella Valley, as many of you are aware. It's beautiful. It's prosperous. There are a few gated communities down there, as it turns out. And there are a lot of really nice cars. I saw more Bentleys and more high-end Teslas than I have ever seen. I didn't rent one of those. I just rented a Nissan. But man, they were, they were there to look at. And perhaps the greatest sign of utopian society, 143 golf courses. That's not bad in the desert, sucking that little water right out of the ground there. But there are other things that, that we experienced when we were down there. There are entire swaths, not rows, entire sections of parking lots 
that are set aside for disabled parking. I mean, half of the parking lot is painted blue. It, it's, it's, a, it's a little tough. Um, uh, I found myself, you know, having to navigate around a lot of walkers in the grocery store. Um, we saw a lot of medical centers, like every corner. We saw a lot of advertisements for joint replacement. There, there was a different vibe there. And it was a reminder that behind all of the prosperity and all of the beauty of that area, there's a lot of suffering, a lot of physical suffering. And, of course, it's the physical suffering that is more easily spotted. But we know, of course, that what you can't see is also there. And that's the relational and the spiritual and emotional suffering that every single human being struggles with. Some of us more than others. Some of us for longer than others. But all of us face suffering. According to the countless surveys that have been done on the topic, suffering is one of the main reasons that people don't come to religious faith. It's one of the great objections to the existence of God is the, pres- the idea of, of pain and suffering in the world. And by the way, it's not only we Christians who have to come up with an answer for this. Every world religion and every world irreligion, every irreligious philosophy is also going to have to give answer to the reality of pain and suffering. What are they going to do with it? And there, there are a variety of responses, aren't there? In Hinduism, the answer is karma. We're, we're dealing with the, the, we're paying the price of our past behavior in a previous life, in reincarnation. It's a cycle, and in a cycle of reincarnation. And we're coming back, and whatever we're experiencing now in the way of suffering, we're paying a price for something we did before. So for the Hindus, they would say that, that suffering is payback. There's a philosophy called nihilism, which is very pessimistic. It rejects all moral teaching, all moral authority. Uh, it's all nothingless meaningless. And, and so nihilism would say that because life has no meaning, suffering has no meaning. It just is. That's, a, that's an upper. Um, Islam. Islam would say that's, that uh, they, it focuses, of course, on the sovereignty, the absolute sovereignty of a non, uh, unloving God, Allah. And uh, in fact, Islam means submission. And so for, for the Muslim, suffering is simply God's will. And Buddhism would argue that since all matter is illusory, it's all a delusion, then the, so is pain and suffering. So for them, suffering is all in your mind. So those are your offer, op- options. Suffering is payback. Suffering is pointless. Suffering is God's will. Suffering is all in your mind. I'm not sure that we find that very satisfactory. So what would be the Christian answer to the question of pain and suffering? How should we who have the Spirit of Christ living in us deal with this topic. And Paul makes, I think, three points about it in the text that I just read. We expect it, we will exchange it, and we must embrace it. So we must expect it, we will exchange it, and, and we can embrace it. Those are the three points. Let me, let me dive a little more deeply into that. First of all, we must expect it. Suffering is a part of life. We all know that. And, fr- and frankly, I think this service probably knows it better than the next service. Uh, and I don't mean to be in, the, in this, there's just something about the, the, the graying of our temples and the getting longer in the tooth. We've gone through it. We have faced it down in a way that young people haven't, but they will. Suffering is just a part of life. It's a result of sin. When Adam and Eve disobeyed the Lord and, and, uh, and turned their backs on God's commandments, one of the consequences of that was pain and suffering. But it's not just Adam and Eve that suffered, by the way. The whole of creation suffers. Did you see that? Paul alludes to it in the passage that I just was reading. Not only did God pronounce a curse on his 
children, his first children, for their disobedience, there is a corollary curse, an ancillary curse that he pronounced on the world because of them. There's a sense in which innocent creation, innocent earth, is bearing the consequences of our crummy behavior. And Paul says that the earth, the creation, is actually groaning in anticipation of the day when we humans finally get our act together. Or maybe we should say when God finally gets our act together, right? In the meantime, suffering just is inevitable. You can expect it. At some point, it's going to come. So those pastors who preach that pain and loss and suffering, that that's all due to a lack of faith, that may I just say they are heretics. They are heretics. Plain and simple. Did Paul lack faith? Paul suffered magnificently. In fact, he recounts his sufferings to us in the second letter of the Corinthians, verse 11, chapter 11. Let me, let me tell you, here's his autobiographical account of some of what Paul went through. He says, I experienced imprisonments, countless beatings, was near death. Five times I received 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, stoned. Three times in a shipwreck, night and day adrift at sea. In danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil, hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger, thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. That's Paul. Did Paul lack faith? Is that why all of this stuff happened to him? Well, let me take it a little bit further. This last Wednesday, we kicked off Lent. Did Jesus lack faith? Because Lent, this season, is an observance of the sufferings and privations of Christ. The very gospel that we proclaim, the very gospel that Paul proclaimed, a a gospel of forgiveness and redemption and of grace, the foundation of that gospel is a God who became man and suffered unto death for our sake. Again, verse 17 Paul promises that we will be adopted as joint heirs with Jesus, provided we suffer with him. So part of the way that God sanctifies us, that is, it makes us more holy, part of the way that he prepares us for eternity is through our suffering. And this may not be what we want to hear. And this may not be the way we'd do it if it were up to us. But it's not. So suffering is inevitable. We should expect it. It's part of the brokenness of creation. That is clear. And for most of us, it's a hard word to hear. But there it is. But Paul's not done. He kind of gives us that stark piece of news. Expect it. Suffering's a reality. But then he goes on and says, but we will exchange it. What are we going to exchange it for? Listen to verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What are we going to exchange our sufferings for? Glory. I even said it like a Southern Baptist, glory. (laughs) That was for Charlene. Glory. This is a word that we we don't use very much outside of the church walls, but it's a, a magnificent word, and let me just remind you what it means. We've talked about it in the past, but doxa, that's the Greek word glory, means it's a perfect, brilliant, overwhelming, awesome presence of Almighty God. That's what glory means. 
Paul doesn't deny that we have sufferings. He just says that they're going to shrivel into insignificance when we are brought into the presence of the perfect, powerful, awesome, overwhelming glory of God. The, the, the stuff that we're experiencing is hard, no doubt. But man, someday it will all be forgotten. And to make his point, he uses a very familiar illustration. Labor pains. If I figured out anything standing next to Cindy's birthing bed, it was that labor is apparently unpleasant. I went through all the classes, the breathing classes, the focus class, hee, 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 pa, pa, hee, hee, whatever. But I made the mistake uh, at one point of leaning down with, within her reach. I put my head down near her, and at, at the point when she was experiencing a particularly potent contraction, somehow her little fingers found my right ear, and she nearly hee, 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 pa, pa, that right off of my head. To this day, if you take a look, my right ear is longer than my left ear. And I can say that quite literally, I entered into her pain in in that moment. But the look on her face as she held our newborn Rachel uh, told me that all that she had endured, the hour of those painful contractions, it was forgotten in that moment. The glory of what had come put all of that into the, the rearview mirror. As far as I was concerned, it was no big deal. We were ready to have another one, weren't we, honey? (laughs) There's a hymn called The Old Rugged Cross, and I think many of you love it. And one of the lines says, I will cling to the old rugged cross and what? Exchange it one day for a crown. That is a glimpse of what Paul's talking about here. The incredible claim of the Christian faith is that God uses suffering to redeem us and transform us and fit us for heaven. Paul's going to touch on this idea later on in really one of the mountaintop verses of all Scripture when he says, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. When you think about it, it really says something about the power and the sovereignty of our God that He can turn even that which is most painful in our lives into a tool by which he makes us more and more and more like his son. How great a God is that? He says, I'm going to take even that, even that awful thing, and I'm going to use it to make you more like my son, your fellow heir. But if this is true, if suffering is God's way of preparing us for eternity, how then do we deal with it here? While it's not the glory, but it's the pain at times. What do we do with suffering? I think Paul would say we embrace it. We embrace it. When he speaks at that last verse, which I called to your attention in verse 27 of the journey from suffering to glory, he says, we wait for it with patience. That word patience, you actually know that word. We spent some time with him. He's a good friend from a few weeks ago. Remember the word hupamene? Hupamene? It's that hang in there baby uh, image. Where is that? Bring, bring, show me the cat. There we go. Remember that one? It's no matter what you're holding on for dear life, you're not going to give up. It's the, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me kind of endurance. That's, that's what that word is. Paul says we wait with hupomene. We're holding on. If it is true that God uses suffering to conform us to the image of his son, if it is true that God uses suffering to shape us into his children, ready for, for glory with him for in eternity, then... What ought we to do with that suffering in the moment? The best thing we can do, surely, is to embrace it. To pull it to ourselves. We face it. 
We move towards it. Courageously. We say, I, I hate what I'm feeling right now. I don't like this at all. I wish I weren't going through it. But if I am, and since by faith I believe that God is going to redeem this, He's going to use this moment to draw me closer to Him, then let's get on with it. Sooner is better. If that's what I have to do, then bring it to me and let's get on with this process. And I am not talking about a phony, everything's all right kind of pretense. I'm not talking about putting on a plastic smile on your face and speaking religious platitudes. Because all you got to do is read the Psalms and discover that David's prayers in his times of suffering were raw and real and sometimes seemed disrespectful to God. You read those Psalms when he was being tracked down by King Saul who wanted to do him in. You read what he says. He would say things like this. God, why are you letting this happen? Remember? Why don't you do something about this? Why are you allowing? Why are you turning a deaf ear to my pain? Why are the good guys suffering while the bad guys are flourishing? God, that doesn't make any sense. Every one of us has prayed prayers like that at one time or another. It's a a wonderful reminder of the reality of Scripture. But David never stopped there. He never stopped shaking a fist at God, although he might have done it occasionally. But that wasn't where he ended up, because he would always come back to this point where he had said, Nevertheless, nevertheless, no matter how bad things are, I know you. I love you. I trust you. And I believe that you're going to take even this moment when I'm being besieged by my enemies and you're going to turn it into something that is good, a blessing, a glorious thing. Our instinct is to flee suffering. Our instinct is to push it away. Paul would say, embrace it. If it's there, pull it to yourself and let it do the work that God wants it to do. Candidly, I suffered when I wrote this sermon. Because I... I don't know that I feel qualified to speak to this very tender issue. And of course, like all of you, I don't want to feel qualified to speak about this topic. I I don't, I can't say as I look back over my 60 years, I can't, I cannot say that I feel like I have suffered very much. I fell on my, on my head on an ice rink in 2003 and and nearly died, but I didn't suffer. My family probably did. But I didn't. I've had a lifelong back and forth struggle with depression. Uh, what Winston Churchill called the black dog. And those have been hard moments for me, and I still occasionally struggle with those, so perhaps that might qualify. I think back to perhaps the hardest season in my life was a seven year period when I was involved in a lawsuit. And even to this day, I cannot look back and say, oh, that's the good thing that God was working through that. Honestly, to this day, I look back and say, what a horrible waste and relational carnage resulted from that experience. So I felt like I suffered a little bit there. But honestly, compared to what some of you are experiencing, my suffering is, is nothing. And there's a sense in which I feel unworthy to speak of it. Last night, when I was looking across the crowd, today, as I look across the crowd, I see faces, and I know what many of you are going through. Many of you are facing cancer. I saw one man last night alone, his wife, who is facing cancer, not strong enough to be in church with him. They're they're suffering. I, I think of those who have been betrayed by their spouse. 
I think of those whose children are sick or who, worst of all, have lost a child. I, I can't even imagine. I ask permission of my friends who lead worship here on Sunday mornings, if I could say something, because it's such a tender topic. But it struck me as I was thinking about it, many who lead us in worship have experienced this most horrible of things. Margie and Dave lost their little Mari at 10. Second service, James Roberson lost his daughter Kylie at, at the age of seven. And of course, Dave Thomas, our guitar player, recently lost his beloved wife, Melinda. And, and so I, I don't know what you have experienced. I can only imagine. And yet they continue to sing. And they continue to help us sing. But they and the others of you who are going through these things could rightly point at me and say, you don't really know what you're talking about, Pastor. And I would say, guilty as charged. I have not faced what many of you have faced. And yet, beloved, I will stand by my words. I think they're right. Nevertheless, embrace your suffering. Because what what are your options? What are the options? Do you want to numb your suffering? You could, you could numb your suffering with alcohol or, or drugs or food or sex or spending. You can deny your suffering. You can bury it down deep inside of yourself until it's a volcano that's about to erupt and destroy you. Or you can curse your suffering and the God who allows it. That's what others do in times of suffering. They, they numb it. They deny it. They curse it. But Jesus calls us to something different. Something heroic and something possible because His Spirit abides in us. He calls us to join Him in Gethsemane, even as we beg God to take away that which He still chooses to give. He calls us to Calvary to join Him there, where He died as an apparent loser and a criminal, only to be raised three days later to incomparable glory. He invites us to carry our cross, to pick up our cross and follow Him. If we do not believe that God can take even pain and suffering and redeem it, use it for His purpose, use it to shape us and prepare us for glory, then what we really are saying is all suffering is meaningless. It's like the nihilists. And how then do you speak into the lives of the 17 families who lost loved ones that were brutally murdered in Florida? To speak to them words of hope or endurance or perseverance or redemption. It might come across as pat. It might risk coming across as trite or patronizing. (laughs) But if we don't believe this passage, then these deaths are utterly meaningless. And if Paul is saying anything, he is saying that the sufferings of God's children are never meaningless. Never wasted. He echoes the words that David once wrote in in his psalm, Psalm 56, when he was still under attack. Here's what David wrote in a time of suffering. He said, you have kept count of my tossings. You have put my tears in your bottle. You have kept count, David says, of the times I've tossed in my bed sleeplessly. You have put my tears in your bottle. Our suffering is precious to God. Every tear that is shed over the loss of a child, the loss of a marriage, the loss of health, the loss of wealth, 
the loss of hope, every tear shed, God says, I'm going to collect it and I'm going to save it. And as I read that, I imagine this heavenly storehouse with lines and lines of shelves filled with billions of crystal carafts, each one of them containing the salty evidence of a broken heart. Our suffering is precious to God, so much so that He entered into it. God may not choose to tell us why we suffer, which is the answer to the question we most want. Why? God may not choose to tell us, but what he did was declare his compassion for us by entering right into the midst of human suffering. He sent his son, Jesus, who experienced the depth of human pain and abuse and betrayal. And by the way, God the Father entered also into our suffering. How? Because he experienced the death of his only child. No other religion, no other irreligion makes that claim. We have a God who embraced our suffering so that we might experience his glory. We have a God who embraced our suffering so that we might experience his glory. John Stott, who is one of my favorite commentators on Romans, (laughs) has this to say about this passage. He says, some Christians grin too much and groan too little because they have no place in their theology for pain. You get that? Paul talks about the groaning of creation, the groaning even of ourselves. In a moment, next week, we'll hear about the groaning of the Spirit. He says, some Christians grin too much and groan too little because they have no theology for pain. We're not going to be that kind of a place. We're not going to be a place where you have to pretend that it is not there. This church is a place where we tell the truth about suffering, that it is real, that it is raw, that is oftentimes inexplicable. It is. We have an entire ministry set aside called Celebrate Recovery to give hope to those who wonder if there is any hope on the other end of their pain. And yet we have a God who is so great that he can turn... Our mourning into dancing. That he can redeem our deepest pain and use it to prepare us for a glorious eternity that we cannot even imagine. And in the presence of that, all of this will one day fade away. And so we hupomene. We hang on. We embrace it. And we wait for that day. And what a day that will be. Let us pray. And in any given Sunday, Lord, there's a variety of people here, a variety of experiences. There are some of us for whom right now life is good and sweet. It is a foretaste of glory divine. We are living at peace. We are in loving relationships. We are healthy. All is good. And so, God, we celebrate that. For those who are there, thank you for that. Thank you that we get a a taste of what one day we will know forever, for eternity. Just a glimpse of it. But I, I know there are people here for whom this is a time of darkness and suffering and pain. And so, Lord, I pray that we could believe that you are so great that you can take even our pain and our suffering and use it to conform us to the image of your Son so that we might become joint heirs with him fit for all of eternity and the blessings that you have for us.
I pray, God, that those who are suffering would, in faith, embrace that. Draw it close to themselves, would invite you to do whatever it is you need to do in their lives through that moment, trusting that there's something great and good and freeing that is beyond that. And so, Lord, as a church, for those of us who are in suffering right now, those of us who are not, may we walk together in this, knowing that it's only a matter of time that we will be trading places where we will go from being the one whose hand is held and and patted to being the one who's doing the comforting. May we walk together in this veil of tears and look toward that day of glory for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we pray. Amen.